Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you that we belong to you. And for the grace that has made this all possible. Lord, we thank you that you brought us out of the realm of darkness into your light. Lord, that you took us who were once your enemies and have made us your very children and citizens of your heavenly realm. Lord, we thank you for the riches of your grace that you shower on us now and will shower on us throughout eternity. And Lord, for the fact that all these things are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for this letter that Paul wrote that is so focused on the all-sufficiency of Christ. Everything we need is found in him. And Lord, I pray that as we come to grasp that, that he will become more and more our focus. That our focus wouldn't be on our lives, but our focus would be on his. And that our desire would be that his life would be seen in and through us so that others might be drawn to him. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit, for his teaching ministry. We pray, Lord, that he would guide and direct in our time together this morning and make it that which you would have it to be. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, we're continuing on through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And as I point out each week, there is a an um, overarching theme that holds this letter together. Everything in this letter in some way contributes to our understanding of this theme. You know, when Paul sat down to write this letter, uh, he had a reason for writing it. And that's true of, of uh, you know, all the letters in the New Testament. Again, <laughs> Writing letters weren't as easy for them as it is for us with a sit down at the computer and type something out. Uh, you know, parchment was of a premium and writing and then getting it uh, taken to the recipients all took a lot of time. And so by, somebody didn't just sit down and say, hey, I want to write a letter. There was a reason for it and there was a reason for this one. Uh, the church in Colossae was being uh, attacked by false teaching. And uh, apparently a lot of different false teachings. And there were already those who had been led astray and there were others who were still in danger of that. And so Paul, uh, and, and, well and let me say, these false teachings were all challenging the sufficiency of Christ. They were all seeking to say, you need something else. You need something more. It's fine for you to put your faith in Christ uh, basically as your ticket into heaven. But when it comes to life, you need something additional. And we'll see as we go on uh, some of the things that they were proposing that were needed in addition to Christ. And so Paul sits down and writes this letter to a, a bunch of believers that he had never even met. They were an offshoot of his uh, the church he had planted in uh, Ephesus, but he had never been to Colossae, but he still has a, a heart for this church. And he writes this letter, 
And the purpose of the letter is to point out that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things. The focus is on the preeminency of Christ, that he is over everything. There is no one higher than him. There is no one who could possibly add to what he has provided. And so our Christian life is sourced 100% in him. And so, you know, as we move forward in this letter, you know, Paul is going to be developing this more and more. Now, you know, we find that early in the letter, Paul focuses on his prayers, his prayers of intercession, his, his prayers of thanksgiving for the believers. And even in these prayers, it all ties into his theme because what Paul prayed all revolved around all that they are and had in Christ. He was thankful for the impact that Christ had already had in their life. And when he, when he uh, uh, prayed his petitions for them, it was not that uh, anything additional would be given to them, but that they would grow in their understanding and their wisdom of what they had. So that they might utilize it more fully. Everything you need for time and eternity you already have. It's all yours in Christ. And some of you might say, I don't feel like that. I don't look like that. It's because you have not let yet learned all that you are and have. And you haven't yet appropriated all that you are and have. And that is a lifelong journey. I'm still learning what I have in Christ. I'm still learning to appropriate things that perhaps I've known for years I've, uh, have been true. But I, they haven't really been brought into my experience yet. The Christian life is not growing in gaining additional things. It's growing in our knowledge and understanding and appropriation of what we've had all along. And so his prayers reflect that. Then he moves into the section of his letter that focuses on the preeminence of Christ. And he talks first of all about Christ in relationship to creation. That creation was sourced in him. That he was the one who created all things. All things were created by him. All things were created for him. And he sustains all things by his power. And then from that he flows into Christ in relationship to the new creation. He holds the highest position among the new creation. He is the one that was the beginning of the new creation. And like the creation around us, everything about the Christian life is tied back to Christ. And then, you know, and I skipped over the fact that he starts out before he even talks about Christ in relationship to uh, creation. He talks about Christ in relationship to God. That he is the image of the invisible God. That everything God is 
is visibly made uh, known through Christ. I like the way F.F. Bruce says it. In him the invisible was made visible. So the fullness of, of God is in Christ. The fullness of creation is in Christ. The fullness of the new creation is in Christ. And therefore, all fullness was in Christ. And he is the one to reconcile all things to God. And he did it through his shed blood. And we spent time talking about that. Now last week we moved in to the next section of Paul's letter that focused on his ministry. Because Paul was convinced in the... Uh, regarding the sufficiency of Christ, Paul said that his ministry was preaching Christ. Paul did not preach a religious system. He didn't put down a, a system of rules and regulations. Paul preached Christ. You know, in his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul talked about his own burning desire and it was to know Christ. I want to know him. This is Paul. <laughs> he already knew Christ probably better than anyone in this room. But he said, I really want to know him. And now as he talks about his ministry, it's to make Christ known. To proclaim him. So that people could come to know Christ. To really know Him. Not just as their Savior, but as their all in all. Everything in Paul's ministry revolved around Christ. And that should be what we're proclaiming. I think I shared last week, we had a friend in Ireland who was in a conversation with her sister-in-law who was an unbeliever and and her sister-in-law talked about you know the problems she had with different Christians and this friend of ours said it suddenly struck her I don't have to defend Christians I don't have to defend Christianity and she said you know I, I turned to my sister-in-law and said I have problems with some Christians too but let me tell you about Christ Our burning desire shouldn't be to promote primarily our church or, or, you know, our theological system or this or that. Our burning desire should be to preach Christ. So that people can come to know Him as He is. Now we got through the end of chapter 1 last week and we pick up in the opening verses of chapter 2 where Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are in Laodicea and for all those I ha who have not personally seen my face. And we kind of ended on this note last week. I said, here we're reminded that Paul had never visited the church in Colossae. He had never visited the church in Laodicea. Uh, a town that was only about, I think, 13 miles from Colossae. Uh, but he says, look, you know, I ha uh, have a great struggle on your behalf. 
And not only for you, but for, you know, all these other believers that I have never met. I struggle for them. And he goes on to speak of what that struggle was. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of, uh, of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now Paul's main goal here in his struggle for the Colossians, for the Laodiceans, for all these who he had never met, was, uh, you know, that they might have a true knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ himself, in whom he says are hidden all the uh, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we're going to examine that purpose in just a few minutes. But before he gets to the main purpose for which he struggled, he first sets forth three major benefits that he he desired for uh, the Colossian believers to experience. And the first of these is that their hearts might be encouraged. Now, W.H. Griffith Thomas, speaking about the Greek word translated encouraged here, states that it has a threefold meaning. First, to be encouraged. Secondly, to be exhorted. And thirdly, to be strengthened. And he said, it thus includes the three elements of endurance, courage, and consolation. And the apostle wishes these Christians, one, to be strong, Two, to be fearless and to be full of good cheer as they faced the errors and the difficulties that surrounded them. But, you know, for them and for us, 2,000 years later, to be fearless and strong and full of good cheer as as we face the challenges uh, around us, we need a solid foundation. And that foundation could be none other than Christ himself. See, he wanted them to have these benefits, but he knew for them to reap these benefits, they, they had to have Christ in their, their proper place in their life. No other foundation would be solid enough. So the second benefit was that they might be knit together in love. Knit together, brought together. He desired there be a unity among the believers. But he didn't just want unity. He wanted a unity that was brought about by them being bound together by love. You know, I've said it before. Unity is a good thing, but not all unity is a good thing. We can be unified in bad ways. Prime example in scripture is Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel. God looks down and he says it is not good. They were incredibly unified. 
And God says, it ain't good. <laughs> we got to do something about this unity. And so he went down and divided everybody up. Why? Because they weren't unified around the Lord. They weren't unified in seeking Him and His will. They were unified in standing in opposition to Him. There's a lot of unity uh, in the world around us today that ain't good unity. Because it has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with standing in opposition to Him. So He desired unity, but that it come from them being bound together by love. And the word translated love here is really the primary word we see for love in the New Testament. And that is the Greek word agape. Regarding it, I like Kenneth Weiss' definition. He says, the one word that indicates its character is preciousness. Agape is a love called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the object love. It's a love of esteem, of evaluation. It has the idea of prizing. It recognizes the worthiness of the object love. It is a love of approbation, a love devoid of sensuousness, the noblest word for love in the Greek language. Agape love is not so much an emotion as it is a value-driven action. You know, it's unfortunate that we lump all the Greek words under one, love. Because we only think of love, by and large, as an emotion. What I feel for somebody. And that's not agape. Agape places a value on someone and seeks what is best even at great personal cost. It wasn't that the un- we as unbelievers were so emotionally appealing to God that caused him to send Christ in the world. It's that he placed a value on us and was willing to seek our best even at great personal expense. The King James writers often used to translate it um, charity. Which to me is probably a more accurate translation than our word love. Because charity sees someone in need. And it places enough value on them to seek to minister to that need. To, you know, at personal expense, try to reach out to them. That's what agape is. And that kind of love isn't a natural thing for us. It's not a natural thing for me to be concerned about meeting your needs without any sort of reciprocal action on your part towards me. Agape is non-reciprocal. I don't do something for someone else so that they will do something for me. I do it because they are of value to God and therefore if He values them, I value them. And I'm willing to minister to them, even if it costs me. 
But this kind of love requires a foundation, and that foundation is Christ. I assure you that agape love does not flow from my fleshly nature. It doesn't. My fleshly nature is selfish. My fleshly nature wants something back. If it does something for you, it wants you to owe me. (laughs) Agape doesn't do that. And if we as the body of Christ were all dealing with each other in agape love, there would be unity. Division in the church doesn't come from too much agape love. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. They they are looking for something. You know how many benevolent people are there that that they they want everybody to know they're benevolent. You know uh, what they're looking for is an elevated stature in the view of those around them. You know, the unbelieving world's looking for something. Yeah? Or they might do it, would y'all agree, just trying to feel good themselves. Sure, yeah, it could be. Uh, patting themselves on the back. We had neighbors in, in Wisconsin that were, as far as we know, did not know the Lord, and they were the best neighbors in this world. I mean, they came over, and when Rick had us ever done, they, they, uh, they would snowblow our driveway. They would just come over that man with yeah. and do stuff for us all the uh-huh. time. And we loved it and we loved them and prayed for them still so much. But you know, it always it was always amazing to me that they did that without knowing him. But, you know, we appreciated it. I wouldn't tell no. you what they did for anything. But, you know, it, I think it made them feel really good that they were taking care of us all folks. Yeah. <laughs> but we still love yeah, it. Yeah. 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 Now the third benefit Paul de- desired for the Colossian believers, I think for us too, was that they might attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. These believers back then, like us, had great wealth at their disposal. It's interesting, Paul often spoke about wealth, but his concept of wealth was very different than the world's concept of wealth. The world's concept of wealth is material things. It's property, it's money, it's things. That's the world's concept of wealth. But true wealth in Paul's eyes were the things that endure beyond time. What the world views as wealth doesn't go with us. My dad used to say, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You know, no matter how much wealth you have here in time, You leave it all behind. Job said, naked came I from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. You know, he says, I'm going to go out just the way I came in. With nothing. 
So what did Paul see as true wealth? Well, in Ephesians 1.7, he spoke of the riches of God's grace. Paul spoke of the wealth of grace. You and I are incredibly wealthy in the grace that God has showered upon us and continues to shower upon us and will shower upon us throughout eternity. The provisions of God's grace are eternal. They last. They endure. In Romans 11.33, he speaks of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. He says, man, if we experience the wisdom of God, if we, you know, take hold of the knowledge that God provides for us, we're wealthy. It's riches. In Ephesians 1.18, he speaks of the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The riches of his glory. We are going to share in Christ's glory throughout eternity. We're wealthy. In this passage, Paul focuses on the wealth of having full assurance of understanding. Now, as we move forward in this letter, we're going to see that from the context of the letter, it appears the Colossian believers were being bombarded with all different sorts of philosophies. You know, their world was very much like ours. You know, all these different views, all these different philosophies. You know, what is true? You know, how can we know for certain that what we believe is true? But in Christ, we do not have to live our lives in intellectual uncertainty. I can know what God says and I can go to the bank with it. There is no uncertainty with what God says. God has proven himself faithful to his word from the beginning of time onward. In Christ, we have the potential for certainty in our understanding of things. Now, Paul's desire was that they attain to this assurance. He does not state that they, he desired for them to obtain it. That would mean that God had not yet provided for this need. When he says attain, he, he's implying that the provision is already there. We simply have to attain it. We have to grow to it and come to experience it. Now, each of these benefits rests upon the foundation of knowing Christ. But as they are developed, they also bring with them the result of a deepening, more full knowledge of Him. And that's why Paul states that his ultimate desire for the believers as they experience these three benefits 
was that they attain uh, a true knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ himself. Now the word translated true knowledge here is the Greek word epigenosis. You know, the primary word for knowledge in the New Testament is gnosis. Epigenosis takes it to a higher level. Thayer defines it as a precise or a more precise and correct knowledge. Trench defines it a little bit uh, more completely. He says, it is bringing me better acquainted with a thing I knew before. A more exact viewing of an object that I saw before afar off. That little portion of knowledge which we had here shall be much improved. Our eyes shall be raised to see the same things more strongly and clearly. All the uses of epigenosis which St. Paul makes justify and bear out this distinction. So he's saying, look, as you reap these benefits, my burning desire for you is that you come into an increasingly more precise understanding of Christ. That you come to know him better than you've ever known him before. You see him with greater clarity. He says, I want you to gain this more precise knowledge of God's mystery, whom he identifies as Christ. Now, we talked about the word mystery last week. You know, I pointed out that in the New Testament, the word mystery speaks of something that has already been, always been part of God's plan, but had never before been revealed. And there are a lot of truths in the New Testament that we don't see in the Old Testament. They were mysteries. They were always part of God's plan. The church was really a mystery in the Old Testament. You don't see the church back there. It was always part of God's plan, but it was a mystery. And here, Paul speaks of Christ being a mystery. Now, you might say, well, in the Old Testament, Christ was prophesied. He was predicted, yes. There, it was not a mystery that Christ was going to come. It wasn't even a mystery that he was going to suffer and die, although... Uh, his disciples didn't seem to understand that. You know, they, along with so many in Israel, wanted to embrace the prophecies of a ruling, reigning Messiah, but they didn't want to embrace the prophecies of a suffering Messiah. <clears throat> so, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a mystery that Christ was going to come. It wasn't a mystery that Christ was going to die. But he was a mystery. Because there was so much about him that was never revealed in the Old Testament. And some of that we saw in chapter 1 when we got into the Christ hymn. 
The Old Testament, it was never really seen in the Old Testament that Christ was the source of creation. It was never really seen in the Old Testament that Christ was the one who created all things. It was not seen in the Old Testament that all things were created for him. It was not seen in the Old Testament that he was the one who sustains all things. See, all these truths concerning Christ were not seen in the Old Testament. He was seen in the Old Testament. He was prophesied. But all these truths about him were not seen back there. You know, when John opens his... uh, gospel with in the beginning was the word and word was with God and the word was God the same was in the beginning with God all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made this was not information that the Old Testament saints understood they didn't even really understand that the Messiah was going to be God incarnate (laughs) although there were implications of that in the Old Testament they didn't understand that They knew he was going to be the son of David, that he was going to be a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of of Isaac, a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of Judah. But he was largely a mystery. And Paul says, my desire is that you come into an ever more precise understanding of this mystery. That you come to see Christ with greater and greater clarity. That you really come to understand who he is. And a lot of the problem there in in Colossae was they were losing sight of who he is. They were letting people tell them that he wasn't enough. That they needed more. But see, it was only through the writings of Paul and the other apostles that the veil was pulled back on Christ. So that believers could begin to understand with greater and greater clarity the fullness of his person and work. That they could come to see with greater clarity who he is. We need to see that. We really need to come to, and we need to pray along with Paul, I want to know you Christ. I really want to know you. I know you as my Savior, but I want to know who you really are. And what you have the potential to do in me and what you have the potential to do through me. I want to know you in an epigenosis kind of way. An ever more precise way. And Paul goes on to state that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this statement 
provides a bridge to the next section of the letter. Because in the next section, he's going to confront some of the false teachings that were being uh, proposed. And we're going to say that among other things, there were those who were proposing that, you know, in addition to Christ, they needed the, the Greek wisdom. And others were saying, you know, you need this special knowledge. It wasn't full-blown Gnosticism, but was an early form of Gnosticism, which held to this special knowledge that, that only a select few had. See, the Greeks were always seeking after wisdom. And their belief was that all the treasures we're looking for is found in wisdom. The Gnostics, even in its early form, were great proponents of knowledge. And all the treasures we're searching for in the last life are found in knowledge. A lot of that kind of thinking's prevalent in our world today. You know, it's all in, in education. I'm not against education. I taught in a Bible institute for years. But, you know, if we just were fully educated and we had all this knowledge, then we would find all these treasures we're searching for. But Paul tells the Colossian believers... All that these men were seeking through wisdom and knowledge were actually hidden in Christ. Now Paul uses this term, hidden in Christ, a couple of times in this letter. And you know, I used to point out to my students that where something is hidden is where you will find it. One day, with one of my classes, I went in early and I hit a $10 bill. And I told the students I would give it to the first student who could tell me precisely where it was. And they guessed all sorts of things. And one girl finally raised her hand and she said, it's precisely where you hit it. <laughs> and I said, that is the precisely right answer. I gave her the $10. See, where something is hidden is where you'll find it. <laughs> you won't find it somewhere else. You can look everywhere else. You will not find it. You know, again, you know, philosophers have sought answers to all sorts of questions over the years. <laughs> you know, I looked online. You know, what are some of the questions that philosophy is seeking to answer. And so I found four basic questions of existence. Who, we, who are we? That answer's in Christ. Where did we come from? That answer's in Christ. Where are we going? That answer's in Christ. How should we live? That answer's in Christ. People are searching for these answers and they're there. 
But they choose to reject Christ. And so the, these questions go unanswered. Other questions. Is there life after death? I don't, I don't see where that's a, a legitimate question. Yeah. I know that in Christ. Because he came forth from the grave. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. When did time begin? When Christ created it. What is reality? <laughs> reality is defined in Christ too. What is life? <laughs> Paul will deal with that as we get over a little further in the letter. The letter. That's the next time he uses the word hidden in Christ. <laughs> He'll say, your life is hidden with Christ in God. What is life? Where is it? It's in Christ. Man. We have so many things that the world is searching for. And there we have the answers. They're all found only in Christ. And so Paul goes on to state that his ministry was to encourage them to remain stable in their faith in Christ. Colossians 2, 4 through 7. I say this in order that no one may delude you with, persu with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and stability in the your faith in Christ. See, the danger that these believers faced was being led astray from the truth in which they had been established. They had been solidly established in Christ. Now Paul says they had a reputation up to this point of living disciplined lives. They had a reputation for stability of faith. This was not like the church in Corinth where you had a very undisciplined group of believers. He was not writing to them because up to this point they had been unstable. He's writing to them because he is afraid that people through men through persuasive arguments were going to lead them astray. He's writing to them to encourage them to continue to move forward in their Christian lives the way they had begun. Verse 6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Here Paul refutes the idea that the Christian life requires anything different than, what, than the way we began. We began the Christian life by faith. And we live the Christian life by faith. Our faith goes into deeper and deeper areas. To be saved, all I had to do was believe that Christ died for my sins. But to live the Christian life, there are numerous uh, 
provision spelled out in the New Testament that God calls me to by faith believe and to live on the basis of. But we don't live by a different system than we began. Paul confronted this in his letter to the churches in Galatia. He asked them, are you so foolish that having begun in the Spirit, you're going to be per- think you're going to be perfected through the flesh? The Colossian believers had begun the Christian lives with their faith in the completed work of Christ. And now Paul says, you need to continue to walk the same way. You don't need to look to the Greek wisdom. You don't need to look to the Gnostic knowledge. You don't even need to look to the regulations of the Mosaic law or any other law system. You need to rest your faith in the completed work of Christ. That's the way you began. That's the way you move forward. And he says, having been firmly Rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See, instead of seeking something outside of Christ, they needed to remain rooted in him. Rather than looking elsewhere, they needed to be built up in him. Instead of looking for something else, they needed to be uh, become further established in their faith. In, instead of, uh, you know, listening to the proponents of these other doctrines, they needed to continue to follow what they had already been taught. Instead of looking for more, they needed to allow what they had in Christ to overflow into all areas of their life. And instead of longing for something else, they needed to come to appreciate the completeness of what they had. Now this brings us to the next section in the letter. Where Paul is now going to refute the error. And so we'll stop here. It's a good place to stop. And so next week we'll begin looking at Paul's refutation of the false teaching that was being uh, uh, proposed there in Colossae. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you that we don't have to live in an intellectual uncertainty. Lord, we know who you are. We know what you have done. Lord, we know that you can be trusted. And Lord, we know what you say about Christ. Lord, may we live as branches of the true vine. May we become his fruit bearers in this lost and dying world. And Lord, may we, like Paul, just be burdened to come to know him in an ever-deepening, more personal way. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.